Hello and welcome to the EG Property Podcast and another in our series of sessions recorded live from MIPIM 2023. Listen in to this recording which unpacks all of the insights from Instant Group and Urban Land Institute's most recent research looking into the evolving needs of occupiers. Vice President of Research and Advisory Services at the Urban Land Institute, Simon Chin, and James Ranking, Head of Research and Insights at the Instant Group, open the session with key findings from the report before Instant's Chief Executive of Partnerships, Craig Hughes, brings a panel of experts to stage for a debate on the future of workspace. Is the office dead? Well, you're going to have to listen in to find out. Enjoy. Uh, Good evening, everyone. My name's Sam McLaren, the editor at EG, and welcome to, um, I can't believe it, but it's our final session of day two. Where has the time gone already? Uh, But welcome to this um, session with Instant Group, and we're going to be talking, not we, actually, I'm going to take a break, Uh, (laughs) talking about bridging the occupier landlord office gap. Um, If you tuned into EG this morning, you will have seen a little brief um, exclusive on uh, what uh, Instant Group and Urban Land Institute's global research showed. Today, um, here, we're going to go deeper into discussion on that. Um, so I'm going to invite up to, to the stage very shortly um, Simon Chin and James Rankin, who are going to go through that research for you. Uh, then Craig Hughes, Chief Executive of Partnerships at Instant Group, is going to come up and chair a panel discussion. There will be Q&A, as usual, so please don't be shy. Um, if you're drinking the gin, it is quite strong, so that loosens the lips uh, if you, if you want to ask those, those questions. But um, let's get... Um, the party started, and uh, please um, welcome to the stage Simon Chin and James Franken. Uh, thank you, everyone, for being here. We're really pleased to um, talk to you about this really important topic. So, just to begin, some context: we all know that offices are currently in a state of flux. Um, so, if we consider for a moment all of the activities that were put on hold and restricted during the pandemic, Uh, things like going to restaurants, uh, going to major sporting events or even conferences like this, all of those are now back to pre-pandemic levels. But for offices, that's not the case. So um, we've seen that the shift to more hybrid and flexible working has proven to be the most enduring thing or impact of the pandemic. And this led us, uh, ULI and uh, the Instant Group, to uh, partner up and do a global study of this important topic and um, really to delve into the evolving um, needs of occupiers and and how workspace is going to be used going forward. Um, And to do this, um, we did a global survey of the key decision makers in um, occupiers and from a landlord's perspective. And... um, We also held some in-depth interviews and steering uh, groups and uh, roundtables to get their um, views on this this sector. And what James and I are going to do now is just give a very short uh, presentation on some of the key findings from this research and uh, some some draw out of the headlines, which we hope will feed into the panel discussion next. So... Uh, James, over yeah, to thank you. you. Cheers, Simon. So, from my personal perspective, uh, one of the standout highlights uh, from the research is, is around change. 
Um, I think we can probably all accept that there's been a significant amount of change in the industry uh, so far in the last couple of years. Uh, but actually, when we look at the research, I think there's a hell of a lot more to come, frankly. Um, it looked like, certainly from the occupier side, nearly, uh, well, just under 85% of them were suggesting that for them right now, today, their uh, current portfolio, workspace portfolio, doesn't align to the business needs from a strategy uh, perspective. So what that means is, well, I think in the road ahead, the next five, ten years, there's going to be unprecedented amount of change compared to what we've already seen. And for me, that, that's a pretty important factor. When we look at right now, what is the priority? It's all about utilisation. Um, how do occupiers get the best utilisation from those, those workspaces that they've already got or that they're bringing into their portfolios? Um, and, and when we talk to the occupiers and landlords about this, there was some alignment in terms of what, what are the uh, features and attributes uh, that will enable that, but actually there was still quite a lot of... Um, gap between the thinking. Um, unsurprisingly, from an asset owner, landlord perspective, quite a lot of it was sort of priorities around the functional, uh, was around the structural and the physical aspect. From the occupier side, it was much more around sort of the softer elements, the ha how are they going to use that space, um, not just their own space, but the whole building, the whole asset as, as a whole. And I think that was quite important. Um, you know, for us, the opportunity here is quite clear. And from the instant group's perspective, we've been doing analysis on this for the last couple of years. And we feel that when you can get it right, when that conversation starts early, earlier, and the occupiers brought into that, that, that discussion, um, really probably pre-build, um, there's a real potential to drive up to 30% net revenue uh, increase from that asset. Um, and that's just through a collaboration of, or a far more collaborative approach um, with the occupier and the landlord asset owner going forward. Thank um, Another of the key findings from the study was that landlords and occupiers, uh, that there's broad consensus that both see much greater uh, demand for lease uh, flexibility and agility going forward. This is shown on the chart there on the left where we surveyed occupiers and landlords and as you can see broad consensus particularly around shorter leases and also a, um, the agility of leases, ability to scale up and scale down space to this more flexible requirements. So basically um, one of the kind of repercussions from this is that the leasing relationship between landlords and occupiers is going to have to move to become much more of a partnership, uh, a lot more dialogue ongoing between the, the two entities. And um, from a landlord uh, perspective, we also see uh, there's likely to be increasing um, need to look at ways of monetizing um, the value-added uh, pay-per-use services um, and more flexible and agile use of space, um, enabling kind of this... Um, occupants to, to tailor the space more. So there's a, there's a definite kind of shift in terms of this leasing business model impact. It would be, I think, remiss of us not to have looked at the sustainability and ESG aspects, particularly given the focus from the corporate occupier today and, and from the industry as a whole, as we can see here at MIPIN. Um, on a positive note, there is, a, or there at least appears to be, some pretty good alignment between the landlord and the occupier in terms of what they think are priorities. Uh, and that is, I think, uh, a, a positive step in the right direction. Um, when we were talking to occupiers about, you know, how really how important is sustainability um, to you as a decision maker when you're taking on, you know, space, um, as you'd expect, the majority 
said it, it was a, it was a factor. But for us, the surprising element was over 50% said it wasn't just a factor, but it was a critical uh, element within that decision-making process, and it would be go it be would be uh, so forth going forward. As I say, the alignment between the two areas is great, but there is a challenge here. And that's when we started looking and asking the, the asset owners around the investment side. Um, so what sort of uh, capex have you got budgeted to uh, respond to the changing demand that we are seeing, you're seeing, from occupiers? Um, there was agreement that there was a change in demand there and that, that it was increasing, but also from a legislation perspective. And the, the worry for me is actually that it was just 2%, um, 2% of those landlords asset owners that said, we have got enough capex budgeted to deliver the change that we see being needed. Um, for me, that's quite a startling kind of aspect or stat, given that you know, the, there is uh, clearly a movement in that direction. So for me, th th we're, we're in the right direction. Um, you know, there was a lot of uh, information coming back about we're starting from the data-led approach, we're starting to understand what the baseline is and we can help that then move forward. But ultimately, it feels to me that from a financing perspective, there is still a, a critical gap um, or between the occupier expectations, between legislation, and between what actually can be achieved um, at an asset level. And um, just to finish up on another of the kind of key headlines from the report. So this was looking at kind of impact on valuation and financing for offices. So traditionally, office um, valuation and uh, financing has historically been uh, focused on the long-term contracts and long-term covenants. and. Um, the survey responses found that 62% of landlords um, expect um, capital values to decline under the existing um, valuation models um, as, as the world moves to this uh, more flexible, hybrid and agile workplaces um, and combined with what James was just highlighting there, a greater need around ESG and um, environmental credentials of buildings, it's clear that the um, traditional valuation models no really longer uh, fit for purpose um, but luckily there are models within the wider real estate industry that the office sector could learn um, learn from so for example more operational real estate sectors such as offices or uh, service departments and um, as offices do shift to this more operational nature uh, with fluctuating income streams uh, from different amenities and services um, we, we feel that there could be a shift towards more discounted uh, cash flow models in terms of uh, valuations and uh, this could help uh, ensure that um, offices help retain their value both from a financial and long-term sustainability perspective. Um, so that's, we've drawn out some of the key findings. Uh, James, do you want to just wrap up? Yeah, no, um, I mean, before I go and get a, a gin, which is desperately needed at this point, um, I'm going to pass over to Craig Hughes. Um, he's the, already mentioned, CEO of the Partnerships Business here at Instant. Um, before that, 10 years, uh, Global Head of Real Estate at PwC, and will be moderating uh, the panel, which I'd like to invite up now and, and pass over to. Thank you. If, you want to, if the panel want to come up, we've got a fantastic panel uh, who I'll introduce uh, shortly. A couple of problems we've got. Um, I'm following Tim Burke, who did a brilliant job just now. The panel are following Duncan Owen, who did a brilliant job as well. So we've got a lot to live up to, as well as following, obviously, Simon and James on the, um, on the research. 
The other thing is the cliche of I stand between you and the drinks doesn't work anymore because you've got the drinks. So we're, we're going to keep on going for as, as long as we can. So who have we got? We've got Natalie, who's the deputy CEO of uh, BMP, huge industry experience, um, and, and will be able to help us a lot as we work through some of the findings. We've got Bo from Edge, and they're pushing the edge in terms of development and the buildings that they provide. Charlie from RBC, you can give us some real insight on the capital markets, the debt side of it, but also been involved in real estate for a long time. And last but not least, we have Lizette, who leads ULI, and a big thank you, Lizette, for helping us or working with us on, on this report. Um, somebody on social media today summarized the keynote speech, and they said, with crisis comes opportunity. Transformational change is required and the clock is ticking. Harsh realities and inspiring solutions. I think everything you just heard echoes that. I think there is a crisis, but there's huge opportunity. The clock is ticking, but it's not too late for us all, and we really need to drive some of this transformational change. So let's get into some of the things that we just saw. And it really shocked me, actually. 14% of businesses think the product that they've bought is right for their business and their strategy. 14%. So 86% of customers have bought a product that they don't think works for them. Would you buy a product a second time that didn't work for you the first time? I don't think so. So I'd like to start with Natalie. Number one, do you, does that resonate with you? Do you think that's true? And if so, how do we become so misaligned? Yeah, I think, of course, it resonates with me. Um, but I think there is a lot of um, geopolitical and macroeconomic background, um, probably to the inquiry and to the answers uh, that you got. Um, I would say that the first real estate flexibility model comes from hotels and the residential sector. And what we learned uh, over the decades about the hotel model is that you need a landlord, an investor with big capital, which is here for long. And you need an operator which brings the service and has the right understanding of transforming this long capital to short-term usage. And at the end, you have the user. So mm, I would say, I believe uh, we will get there also with offices. And being a landlord is not the same as being an operator. That's also what we learned in the recent past. Uh, so we need to find our triple uh, ID model uh, in the office universe. So who plays what role and who's got the expertise and the capability to fulfill that? Okay, yeah, great. Um, Bo, what do you think? Does that resonate with you? And how did we get here and what can we do about it? Because that's a huge misalignment. Yeah, I think it grows over time. You know, if you're in a market where uh, tenants uh, yeah, have uh, difficulty to find the office at all, they, you know, they have to accept what, what is offered. And I think we've been in a too long period uh, that we're not really looking at the needs of the tenants, but we just feed them what, what was available. And they yeah, could only say, okay, thank you, and, and pay a high rent. And uh, yeah, that will change. Uh, I think because of uh, COVID, the hybrid way of working. And uh, yeah, now, you know, uh, as a landlord, you have to seduce your tenant, and you really have to listen first time since 15 years what the tenant really wants so there's competition around now and what you see is that the newer buildings yeah they compete easily with the older ones and they they can still ask rents um, whatever they want i would say because what you see it's it's not only that the tenants um, 
they also have increased their demand, their quality of the demand. It's not uh, a constant factor uh, due to ESG and do all kind of commitments they committed themselves. Their bar is, has also uh, gone up. So it's, it's, it's a couple of effects. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's the offices not only weren't necessarily delivering, but those demands of the tenant have evolved. Yep. And the offices need to evolve with those yeah, and that's as well. Why is the gap constantly yeah. moving? Yeah. yeah. Um, slight angle on that, Charlie. Do you think any of this has to do with if I if I go back to when I first started in real estate, you had the investor, you had the owner or the landlord, you had an agent, you had an agent, you had an occupier, then you had the true occupier, the person moving around in that building each day, the true customer, not the organization. I'm not sure I can think of another industry where it feels as if the owner and the customer are so separate. Did you think that played any role in this misalignment or do you think other things were at play there? Um, it, it's, it's a good question and I think I'd come at answering that from the perspective of um, the glass half full, which is how sell-side investment bankers are supposed to default, is that you've got two sides of the office um, industry being the landlords and the tenants both really kind of wanting the same thing, which is a product that's fit for purpose from the tenant customer perspective with flexibility and service, but also a quality of accommodation that allows them to attract and retain and also operate efficiently. And for a landlord and all of the investment and debt that sits behind that as reliable and high quality and income stream as possible. And to try and answer your question, Craig, I think in the slightly less complicated days of old, um, it was a much more straightforward transaction based on long leases and good old-fashioned things like Landlord and Tenants Act. So you could have all of those intermediaries in the process because it was essentially a, a, a one model fits all kind of identical process across lots of office space. Now it's so bespoke and unique, whether it's brand new market leading edge type kit or secondary needing to be refurbed, it will be an entirely bespoke product that needs to find and attract and retain a tenant. And that's only going to work if you've got as fewer people involved as possible and also people who really understand how to align what the customer, the tenant wants and what the landlord's able to provide by virtue of what they can afford based on the quantum and quality of that income stream. Yeah, and I just, I do have to say, other products are available other than Edge. This isn't product placement for Edge, but I thought I'd just, just add, add that one in there because we're giving you a, a lot of airtime there, Bo. Um, Lizette, would you add anything to what you've heard from the others around, which I still think is, is just incredible, 14% of people think what they've bought matches what they need. Shocking. Yeah, I would like to add, especially also what Charlie just said and the question you asked to Charlie on the, on the misalignment and the, the fragmentation, if you will. Um, because I think on the occupier side, it also has become far more complicated because pre-pandemic, it was sort of people are expected to be in the office five days a week or maybe four, mm -hmm. but there was no real discussion about it. Now everything is up in the air. So there's also, I think, misalignment between the, the ultimate user, what you're talking about, and the tenant. And I think that is also partly uh, maybe explaining why they feel it doesn't fit the strategy. Because 
some of what came out of the report is also like we haven't figured it out yet and that is i think where part of the misalignment comes from what the tenant needs now is flexibility to figure it out yeah. and they need time and we've heard a lot about we don't have the data or we're only starting to collect the data now and obviously that again depends on the type of office where you need the modern office with the censoring to be able to track the data use it and then base a strategy a lot of the strategy that now was being put together was blind we heard the blind word a lot is we're planning in the blind so i think it the occupier side has become far more complicated than it used to be and it takes time and and to figure it out they want sort of the landlord to go on the journey with them and obviously that's a gap because that's not what the landlord has been used to doing. It was sign here, 10 years, after nine and a half years, you come back and in the meantime, you deal with the property manager if there's maintenance or whatever issues. And and that's something that, that I might need more space, less space, but that's also what we saw out of the, the lease uh, the requirements, that the, the biggest response was towards the flexibility in the lease to grow and shrink the space. So I think, and, and that is probably the gap where so someone wants to kind of have full flexibility and, and that's not what the landlord is, is equipped to do right now. I do think there's a lot of positive response because also the landlord needs to figure it out how to do that. But I, I don't think there's a fundamental disagreement that landlords saying, nah, this is just a short-term thing. It is how do we get there? Yeah, I think if I pick two points, one from, from Charlie there and one from you, why would a supplier and customer want to be misaligned? They wouldn't. They'd want the same thing. And I'd love to know what those numbers would have been in January 2020, before we started to have tenants who needed to work it out, as you say. And I think that's a really interesting way to put it. I, I think that really links to, to the next point as well. And maybe Natalie, starting with you. So. 62% of landlords saying they expect this decrease in value. It's almost, the way that's put is as if it's just inevitable because there's a, there's a fixed thing that's going to change value. Is it inevitable? Is there things they can do? And again, does that inevitable fall in value resonate with you? Mm, it resonates, but I completely disagree. I'm, um, uh, <laughs> I'm part of the 38%. Great. What we always need on a panel, though, is disagreement <laughs> and different views. So great. Uh, why? Because when, when we talk about stock and not flux, uh, if you have a large stock, you have plenty of different things. You have fantastic assets, which are really sought after by mm. tenants and where you will have increase in value yeah. because because of many other factors and just the flexibility, non-flexibility topic. But you might have also um, assets which are a little less um, appealing, either because of the location, mm. because of the type of contract, because of uh, um, their environment, because of their size, because of many reasons, because of change of regulation, because of ESG. You can have a very, very mm. long list. So I really, in terms of value, um, I don't like to discuss value evolution as something which is only on one line in any market. Neither today, neither in Jan 20, neither in 2008, neither when I started at the end of the 80s and in between all the crises that came through. 
So to me, it's really what makes our business in general absolutely unique is that each building is unique. And even if you have some characteristics and you can duplicate some elements, each piece, each architecture, each location, each city, each environment is different. And then some be, will be winners, some could be losers. Yeah, and I think you've hit you know, a really important point there. Sometimes you see the headlines, and it just treats it as one block. And, and actually, if you go to it, a building on the same street can have a completely different experience, can be a completely different asset. You've got to look at it on an asset and asset basis, isn't it? Yeah, and, and the good news is that we will have some work to do and we will have a job, is that AI is not going to replace <laughs> the value of people uh, because each building is unique. That's my conviction. Yeah, that, that's, and also there's the diversification benefit for businesses that have diversified portfolios. I can see you chomping at the bit yeah. there, Bo, so I'm gonna come I to you I would love next. to say something about it. If you don't do anything, you will be part of that 62%. And, you know, if a building is fully let, if it was three years ago fully let, it's not a confirmation that the building is good. Because there was the tenants did not have the, choose to, the chance to, to move. But maybe you can compare it best with uh, airplanes. You know, if you buy the newest and latest airplane, you know that's energy efficient, that the comfort level in the airplane is very well. But if you, if you buy a 10-year-old plane or a 15-year-old plane, you know that at some point in time, you have to do something, you have to reinvest. And the, re the biggest question is, can you upgrade it to a level like the newest and the latest planes? I don't think so, but if the core and shell of a building is good enough, that's where the value is, is, uh, is secured, including uh, next to the location. But the fit out, the installations, you have to maintain them. And I think a lot of investors thought, wow, this is going well and uh, I can postpone. You know, in America, I've seen a lot of buildings with single pane glass. It's unbelievable. There was no reason to upgrade it. And yeah, uh, there's a sort of backlog, I believe. So is the headline the industry is going to take off pr pretty yeah, quickly? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, you can change, you can change position if you, if you invest. But, but you have to be realistic, you know. You cannot sit and wait, buy in a building, and you have to, you have to maintain it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's an, I don't want to go too much into CapEx related to sustainability, because that's going to be the next question. But then wh where you talked, Bo about you know needing to invest and you keep the location obviously in the shell and the core. Um, Charlie, do you think there's money out there to be doing some of that? Set sustainability aside just for a moment. Do you think there is the capital out there, especially as valuations go down? Um, I'm not sure if he's still here, but somebody said to me earlier, yeah, it was two percent of of people had the capex for sustainability before, but now with valuations, it's maybe even less. Set sustainability aside, is the money out there? So the short answer to that is, is, is yes. I mean, real estate, and I know we all know this, but it's always helpful to kind of, I think, say these things in an inflationary environment should be an attractive asset class because it's inflation hedged by virtue of rental income. And the point I was thinking as we were just talking there, Craig, about the, um, the point you made on how interesting it is, how few... Um, occupiers think they've bought the right product and also how many landlords appear to think that the value of what they've got is going to go down. I think the fact that both those numbers are materially over 50% is actually very reassuring because if that weren't the case then we'd have a real problem on our hands because people wouldn't appreciate the situation that they're going to have to work through over the course of the next, next few years. And so to bring that, that back to a kind of capital markets observation 
this isn't a valuation comment, I promise. Um, it really all comes down to the quality of the income that office assets are going to be able to generate by virtue of the leases that are granted with tenants. And I'd be interested thinking back through that comment on valuation, how much of it related to, because we're in a new rates environment, the denominator is going to have to come down in some instances because we're, you know, real estate is now up against much higher yielding alternative asset classes. If the question were distilled into a, based on your current level of rental income and your confidence around being able to sustain that, and also your, your bottom line in light of the operating margin that you're gonna have to wear to provide a more serviced and flexible product to your customer, if you assumed a constant in a yield environment, do you believe your asset value is gonna go up or go down? And I think in that scenario, if there are landlords out there who mm. think that their asset value is gonna go down because they don't have confidence in their existing level of rental income or rental growth, then again, it's good that they're recognizing that and there ought to be things they can do about it. But I suspect in an awful lot of instances, there will be the scope for rental growth because we have a functioning office market. It's being procured and managed in a different way. And I think what um, the criteria that is used to determine what good quality rental income from offices looks like is going to change. It isn't gonna be long-term leases on a blunt structure for as long as possible to as high investment grade tenant as possible. It's gonna be something far more um, subscription-based where the valuer, the investor, the bank lending on the scheme will really want to get into the trading performance of that asset in the way that we have been doing for years around hotels and pubs and now extended stay apartments. And, and there seems to be no default reason to me why a, a landlord of office space and any of the capital that supports them would expect that quality and quantum of income to fall, provided they're being as good as they need to be in operating and providing that customer service. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So that denominator is outside of their control, it's to do with everything else, but the things they can control, I wonder if we ask the question, what would that percentage be? Um, Lizette, I'm gonna bridge that question to the next one because I know your, your passion for not just sustainability, you're talking about long-term value, and I won't say any more because I'm, I'm sure you'll talk about it. So anything you want to add on that, but then also this point that, you know, 2% of the, of the landlords think they've got enough CapEx. Um, be interested, is it all about CapEx? Because I know you like to talk about it being a broader issue. And also, does that mean we've got 98% of the stock if everyone had the same amount that's then obsolete? And what do you do with that? Is it stranded assets, obsolete assets? That's real environmental problems by themselves and social problems so your thoughts on that well you, you also previously asked the question is is the money there to plug the gap um, and you could ask the question differently is is there a lot to choose uh, whether to invest or not and i think we're getting to a stage where with the much higher energy prices which to a large extent come to the tenant directly total occupancy costs have come up massively. So where ESG first was, say, nice to have to attract talent, and it's part of the narrative almost, it's now part of the PNL. 
And I think that is a key difference that we should not forget about. And then what we already talked about, uh, where tenants will become more selective. If so, if the leases expiry comes up, so I think there may not be a lot to choose because it's not anymore about capex, it's about preservation of rental income and therefore value. Um, and I think that kind of changes things. And obviously that is not just sustainability investment, that's fit for purpose and, and all the different things, regulatory requirements. So I think that will fundamentally change and therefore you might not be able, while well you might need the equity now to keep the bank happy, if valuations have gone down, <laughs> you're laughing. <laughs> Don't worry, we're coming to nationally next. So, uh. <laughs> I think you also need some equity to kind of to do that. To, and I think, and coming back to the valuation question, I, I am convinced uh, that we need to rethink how we value buildings because all the different elements whether it's physical climate risk transition climate risk we've done a lot of work around tr incorporating transition risk in property valuations just to help build the business case that we need to act it sounds stupid now we know we need to hit a target at 2050 we know we need to invest in that but it's not visible anywhere so why on earth would you be the first one to start if the others don't do it. And so we need to create that level playing field. And that's where I think, and hopefully that is may maybe more the downside risk element. There's definitely the upside, what we've been talking about, the amenities, the services, that is not the long-term cash flow. And on the, on the back of that, the creation of the brand and other ways to make your client sticky. It's, it's how you service them, no? which is not physical, you can't touch it, but extremely important. We've never even thought about that, and that has value too. So I think that one way or another, it needs to happen. Yeah, well, lo lots of companies, being an accountant, lots of companies on a balance sheet will have tangible and intangible assets. So, you know, where are those intangible assets? Well, not a building. Yeah, not a building. <laughs> Natalie, y your thoughts on that around sustainability, the capex, well, and, and also you clearly had some thoughts on the things Lizette was saying there. Well, of course, when we think about sustainability, we tend to think about capex, but it's really not only that. I completely agree with Lizette that the operating cost in energy is part of the sustainability story, but sustainability is also social impact being part of a territory. Uh, you might have amenities in the building or you might have them just around the corner of the street. Of course, if you have a very large property for either one or several huge big corporates, you want to have your amenities inside and it's part of, this, uh, of the story to offer a sustainable building with something which is a lot more sophisticated what, uh, compared to what it could have been 20 years ago. If you're having a 50,000 square foot or 5,000 square meter building, uh, you won't have economical, but also um, level of uh, service possibility to have it inside the building. Yeah. So being sustainable is also not recreating what is not needed, but using what is existing. So it starts with um, 
the money we don't spend, but also the concrete and the steel we don't use uh, in a building. Or so, so there is a lot of um, thoughts to be put there for uh, urbanism and property developers to really rethink the way uh, they see their business, which I think has started from some of them in some countries. It's really probably more European today than American. Um, and, and there is a lot of things to be done there. And it's not, on, you cannot say sustainability is just a CapEx cost. Of course, yeah. then, there, there are CapEx, but it's really a lot wider than that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, why don't we have discounted carbon flows to go alongside discounted cash flows, which is not just the embodied, that's laughing because I'm playing that one all the time and trying to get that one out there, discounted carbon yeah. flows. But, you know, how, how does a building perform over life? And also, I look out across London half the time, see so many cranes, and yet half the buildings are half empty. And you wonder, could we not better utilize what already exists? Bo, you wanted to Yeah, I would love to add to a, something to that. I think there's actually a bright future for 80% of the office buildings of the existing stock, because, um, you know, it's really difficult to uh, to commence new developments uh, because the, because of two effects. One, the replacement costs, the construction costs have gone up tremendously. So there's a big hurdle to commence a new development, uh, to, to line up a new development. And secondly, um, uh, also the cost of capital has gone up. So there's, there's enough space for rental growth for the existing stock. The only condition is you have to upgrade uh, your space before you can get access to that. So there's absolutely, but you have to take a few there. And if you have rental growth, you, then you can defend your, your CapEx program. And you know, besides, there's also uh, hurdles uh, regarding development because if you erect a new building, you uh, yeah, you have to uh, uh, what is it? Consume a lot of carbon, and so there's multiple hurdles from an environmental perspective, from a financial perspective. Of course, new developments will pop up over time, but uh, but you know, three years later, you realize, hmm, what's uh, what's happened? What has happened uh, the last three years? There was a sort of standstill when mm. it comes to new developments, and that's actually what you already perceive. But we will be busy with, with uh, well, commencing new developments, but it will take some time to uh, put a business uh, plan together for new developments. Yeah, so completely. actually, if you believe in this story, you can defend additional capex um, in your existing stock. Yeah. But the, the location should be good enough and the bones of the building should be good enough. Uh, completely agree. Just aware where we are on time, I want to give some time for some questions. but. Um, to cheer everyone up. I think the report also says offices are here to stay. So there is a positive there. And um, two of my passions, one sustainability, the other one is inclusion. And what I love about offices is it brings people of different backgrounds, etc., together. And inclusion is about starting with understanding other people. And if we all just sit in our homes in our own suburbs, everybody looks like us, then we're not really going to foster inclusion. So I think the office has got a fundamental part to play in the social side of ESG as much as in environmental side and and that's another reason why offices are here to stay so we can all feel positive about that with that i'd like to throw it open to any questions from the floor thank you um, my name's uh, cassius chief marketing officer for colliers for the emir region um, and the role of you know what the occupier wants is obviously a base issue which we all need to look at in terms of value of real estate um, and so I'm really pleased that this is focused on this topic today, so thank you. Um, now what we've been seeing is, of course, over the last two, three years, a lot of large-scale our enterprises have been planning and listening to a multitude of different stakeholders that they didn't have to ask before 
about what they need their real estate to do, how it can function, capital value, social and physical side of their space. And we're starting to see them put their action plans in putting their action plans in place now uh, with, with you know, selecting the right building, selecting the right location. And what we're seeing a lot of is that there's a flight to quality. But how do you now grade buildings on what used to be grade A and, and what was prime? Has that now changed from your perspective with the role of ESG as part of their decision-making processes from both their their own people who are demanding it, but also from their investors and from their reporting regulations. Has it changed what Prime is in terms of office buildings? Cassis, who would you like to, so we can get a chance for other questions, can you pick one of the panellists you'd like to give that answer? Charlie. <laughs> Sorry, panellists. I thought that might be coming my way. Um, and as an ex-research analyst, you can remember the kind of titles of notes that we wrote in the past about certain sector, the land that Prime forgot. And, and there may be an argument to pitch some of that around the scale of the challenges that offices have got. Um, I, you know, I think the historic categorization of offices is, is clearly you know, out of date for the new world that we're in. I, I forget the stats, but I think the leading brokers who, who we work very closely with um, from an advisory and valuation perspective still have an incredibly high percentage of the central London office mark categorised as grade A. And I never really quite understood what that meant, but it, but it just obviously can't be that number, that number now. I think the way we would come at it if we were being asked by an investor um, to um, consider an equity investment or from a, from a lending perspective, we would look simply at the trading performance of that asset. Um, and what the historic trading performance has been, what the spot situation is in terms of um, tenant base, um, unexpired lease profile, capex requirement, um, you know, a, a proper kind of delapse survey as opposed to the kind of long leased FRI model that, that is, is also out of date, and what is the, um, you know, the, the management team's plan to be able to maintain that or grow it over time. And, and we would put that through a discounted cash flow. And we'd also probably employ a valuer to give us a red book number that would be a helpful ready reckoner, but certainly wouldn't be the basis upon which we'd be informing the advice that we'd be giving to people committing their equity or, or, or their credit. And so I think it will evolve over time, but it, but it clearly needs to. Thanks, Charlie. Anyone else on the panel with a real urge to answer that, though? Natalie, I can yeah, see you with I, the mic I there. just would like to add that, uh, yes, the definition of prime or grade A has always been, in my view, twofold. One, which is the quality of the building itself uh, and the happiness of the occupier or occupiers. And second, the location. When you have the combination of both, you, don't, you have a prime grade A star building. <laughs> but most of the time, um, and depending on the momentum of the market, you would have maybe one of the, of the two, but not the two. And definitely, if you have um, not um, a, a top location, which is not probably the same definition today as it was when I started my career 36 years ago, um, the importance, for example, of a car access 30 years ago compared to importance of public transport access today is completely different. Um, so. Yes, it, it changes a long time, uh, but in the end, uh, when you look, look through young, 
long sorry, periods of time, you can see that some prime buildings were already prime 30 years ago, or at least their predecessor buildings, this address. Um, some have changed. New areas are emerging, uh, and some which were very trendy and with extraordinary buildings are less fashionable. The question is, would they come back? So that's our job as investors to be very uh, cautious and to look at that very deeply. But it also comes from the tenant in the sense that when you have a, a large occupier who really knows what he needs for its own business, uh, then it helps for the whole area because it helps with the satisfaction of the occupier and the, the, the physical ones, not the tenant as a corporate. And then it helps in all it helps in all the area around. So, yeah, Brilliant. changing definitions, but still a lot of attention from us investors. Thanks, Natalie. Can you please uh, join me in thanking the panel? I think it's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you. And um, thanks again to Simon and James for the opening piece. To uh, the ULI for working with Instant on this and to EG for hosting us, which has been absolutely brilliant. So thanks very much, everybody.